0: Well, there is a nationally known worship leader songwriter named Corey Asbury. I don't know if you guys have heard of Corey Asbury. He's written several recent modern worship songs, really, really good stuff. And he wrote a song that he released last year called Kind, which has kind of a Christian country-western vibe. Is that even a genre? I don't know. but it's. it's a, I'm not a country-western fan, and if you are, more power to you, but... It is a phenomenal song because of the lyrics. And the lyrics fit so perfectly with the book of Ruth, especially today. Here are the lyrics. It goes like this, so profound. He says, sometimes marriages don't work. Sometimes babies die. Sometimes rehab turns to relapse, and you're just left asking why. And for all the prayers I've prayed, I still wonder if he's real. And if he is, how is he choosing who he does and doesn't heal? I've burned my fair share of bridges. I learned to tuck my tail and run, watch the wreckage in the rear view from all the crooked things I've done. And I know that He forgives me, but it's hard to forgive myself. I can't help but think that amazing grace is for everybody else. I've tried to run from Jesus, I've started holy wars, I've tried the patient waiting and kicking down the doors, I've cursed His name in anger with my fist raised to the sky. But in return, all he's ever been is kind. Isn't that good? You ever been there where you just want to shake your fist to heaven? God, why? Why are you allowing this suffering to happen? I don't understand why I'm going through so much pain and hurt. I don't know if you've been there. If you haven't been there, buckle up, because you will be. Because that's life. Life sometimes serves us a bitter pill. That's what happens today at the end of chapter 1 in Ruth. So go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. Now, why are we studying this ancient book of the Bible that was written about events from over 3,200 years ago? Well, number one, because this is part of God's divinely inspired scripture. It's here for a reason, right? But number two, because people are still people. And the more times change, the more we stay the same, we still struggle with, we still wrestle with the same things we have for over three millennia. And so there's so much, this is a treasure trove of truth that we can dig into, so much uh, timeless biblical principles that we can mine from the text here. So, we're going to look at the end of chapter one, we're going to wrap up chapter one today, but let's recap Chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth was written in a dark period in Israel's history. We know that because look at verse 1. It was written in the days when the, what? Judges ruled. So automatically you should be thinking, isn't there a book of judges? There is. And in the English Bible, it precedes the book of Ruth because chronologically the book of Ruth kind of follows or maybe is right toward the end of the period of the judges And Judges, man, if Judges were a holiday movie, uh, excuse me, a Hollywood movie, it would be rated R. It is grotesque, it's violent, it's gruesome because it reveals the depravity of man. Everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. And if we were left to our devices, folks, it would be chaos, destruction, death would ensue. And sure enough, that's the book of Judges. And then you have the book of Ruth in stark contrast, shining brightly with hope. So we look at chapter 1, and there is what happens, a famine in the land. There's a famine in, famine in Bethlehem. Now, does anyone know what the word Bethlehem means in Hebrew? Anyone know what Bethel means? Like Bethel Church? House of God. I heard some people say house of God. El, house of God. So Bethlehem, house of bread. And the irony is in the house of bread... There was no bread, famine, destitute, they're poor, they're hungry. And so Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, leave. They, they have to go somewhere to find food, to leave the famine. And so we, we see the first glimpse of the providential hand of God here. In fact, if you look at the map here, you could see here's Bethlehem in, in Judah, southern Israel, and they travel from there across the Dead Sea down to the country of Moab. Now, Moab and Israel, ooh, there's some bad blood there. I'm Something Taylor Swift would sing about. But, I mean, <laughs> Israel and Moab just did oil and water, did not like each other, hated each other. Now, the trek is about 50 miles. So it's like from here to South Bend, which you can make it from here in, what, an hour? Maybe faster if you're Mario Andretti. But... Back in the day, this is rugged terrain. They're going through mountainous terrain on foot, so it would take about a week, week and a half. Now, today, we're going to geographically go in reverse, but they leave Israel to escape death, and ironically, all three men face it. Elimelech and his two sons die, leaving Naomi with Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, who have not yet had children. And after some time, Naomi hears about the famine ending in Bethlehem. The house of bread is restocked. And so she's thinking, I'm going home. And that's all that's on her mind. She wants to go back. And so on she goes with Orpah and Ruth. But along the way, and we don't know how far, maybe she goes a few miles, maybe she goes a few days, it dawns on her, what am I doing? I can't do this to these two women that I love so much, these two daughters-in-law. I can't do this uprooting them. Making them strangers in a strange land? See, she knew what that was like. She had been an isolated foreigner in the country of Moab for over ten years. She knew the pain of that. And so she urges them to return to Moab. She prays over them, she blesses them, she weeps with them. She loved them like her own daughters. In fact, three times in the chapter, in chapter one, she refers to them as such. Well, Orpah reluctantly returns. To Moab, She returns to her people, going back to her old ways, to her old gods. And Naomi, again, encourages Ruth, please go. Please return to your people. You could say that Naomi was trying to be ruthless. That's how you know it's a good dad joke, because you guys all just groaned. <laughs> and if you're expecting no dad jokes, you are going to be sorely disappointed. But for Ruth, there was no going back. There was no return. See, that was her past life. She left it all to follow Naomi, and more importantly, to follow God. See, somewhere along the way, she has on this road a roadside conversion. She trusts in God. Now, if you've read this story before, you know, spoiler alert, it has a happy ending. Ruth has her happy ending. Ruth finds her prince, but in this moment... She doesn't know how her story is going to unfold any more than you know how your life story is going to unfold. Which makes verses 16 and 17 an incredibly poignant moment of loyalty. Where you go, Naomi, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. It's a declaration of devotion, but it's also a crisis of faith. By the way, often I have heard these verses read at weddings, erroneously, by the way, taken out of context. Usually the wife will say it to the husband. But if she's being honest, she should turn to her mother-in-law and say, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. <laughs> but the husband would be really bewildered and that would be awkward. So, But that's the point. Orpa left to find a husband. She left to find security, but Ruth found her security in God. She found God. And so on they go. So I want you to, actually, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Let's start in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You guys can be seated so we see in verse 19, they arrive in Bethlehem, and the whole town is stirred. There's a commotion. There's a murmuring going about because of their unexpected arrival. After over a decade, Naomi is back. Now, anyone grow up in a small town? I, can isolate, I don't mean Hobart. I don't mean Portage. I mean an isolated, small, small town. Anyone grow up in a small town? I grew up in a a very small town in northeast Colorado. I mean, this town was so small. This town was so small. (laughs) It was, I'm so glad you asked. It was so small that you could dial a wrong number and they would supply you with the right one. It was so small that you didn't have to use your turn signal because everyone knew where you were going anyway. It was so small (sighs) This one's stupid. It was so, <laughs> it was so small that we didn't have a 7-Eleven. We had a three and a half, five and a half. It's <laughs> small town life. In fact, okay, this is true story. That was all jokes. This is a true story. We had a, a paper, a weekly paper that would be published every week called the Yuma Pioneer. It was Yuma, Colorado, is a town I grew up in, and it was maybe four pages. Like there, we just didn't have a lot of news. And there was a town 10, 15 miles outside of our town that made our town look like a booming metropolis. And this town was called Eckley, and it was population 150. And so in page two, I remember, they would dedicate about a half page called Eckley News. And the newspaper editor would call every household and ask, what was the most newsworthy thing that happened? (laughs) So literally, you would read the Eckley News and it would say, Ethel went to Gertrude's house, and they had Beef Wellington on Friday night. I mean, just small-town life. There are pros and cons to small-town life. A pro is, everybody knows you. A con is, everybody knows you. And everybody knew Naomi everyone. It was like a class reunion. They all came out to see Naomi. News in a small town travels fast. It's like a brush fire. Did you hear the news? Naomi's back, and they see her, and they ask each other, maybe in a gossipy way, is this Naomi? Are you sure? She has changed. It doesn't look like her. This is not the Naomi I remember. Time has not been kind to her. Also, like at a class reunion, listen, times change, and some people change, some a lot. And Naomi had changed. Her facial facial features were worn and weathered, wrinkles, crow's feet, gray hair. Uh, Time had just been rough on her. She looked haggard. She looked worn down by grief. You ever seen pictures of Abraham Lincoln in before presidency and toward the end of presidency. Look look at these pictures. This is Abe Lincoln in 1860 on the left. Look how young he looks, just, you know, clean-shaven, smooth, well, mostly smooth face. And then 1865 is the picture on the right. After a grueling, probably the most stressful four-year presidential term in U.S. history, time had not been kind to him. In fact, Abraham Lincoln was once quoted as saying, I'm a tired man, and some days I fancy myself as the tiredest man on the planet. And there may have been some truth to that. Look at the toll stress can take on someone. Life has a way of wearing people down, and life ran roughshod over Naomi. Moreover, where's a where, where are the two boys that we remember? I guarantee you, now, probably no one asked that, but they're thinking it. I've learned the hard way not to ask someone who has recently lost a loved one, hey, how's it going? H- how are you supposed to answer that? Oh, fabulous, never been better, no. How do you answer that? So I've learned the hard way when someone loses a loved one, don't ask how they're, how they're doing, how's it going, say, hey, how are you coping? How are you handling things? How can I pray for you? Where are you in the grief process? How can I help you in that process? So Naomi, sweet, pleasant, delightful Naomi, whose demeanor likely matched her name, which means pleasant. Well, pleasant became bitter. Think of the most bitter thing you've ever tasted in your life. Bitter coffee, bitter medicine, bitter candy, whatever. What is the most bitter thing? Kale. What is the most bitter thing you've ever tasted in your life? See, so when it's in your mouth, when you have something bitter in your mouth, you're not thinking, did I leave the iron on? What am I doing for lunch? No, you only think about it. That's all you think about. It. it consumes your thoughts. That's all you can think about when something bitter is in your mouth. It's all you can think about. And it's hard to get that bitter taste out of your mouth. When life hands you a lemon, what do they say? You make lemonade. Well, what if life hands you a bitter pill, and you just can't get that taste out of your mouth? Well, you can become bitter. And we've all known people like this, mean-spirited, vitriolic, spiteful. It's hard to be around bitter people. But put yourself in their shoes. Hurt people hurt people. Now, I'm not condoning that. I'm not justifying it. It's just true. When people go through hurt, it's so easy to inflict that hurt on others because you are feeling that hurt inside. But see, bitter people were not always bitter. We didn't come out of the womb. people don't come out of the womb bitter, I've never in my life seen a baby with a mean mug, like just a (laughs) sullen, sour frown, just... You know, I've never seen that. Now, you may be thinking, well, you've never met my baby nephew. He is one (laughs) ugly baby. (laughs) But I've never seen that. Babies usually are happy and joyful. We don't become out of the womb bitter. People are not born bitter. They become bitter. And Naomi is not exactly ready to write a joyous memoir about how to overcome tragedy. She's in the midst of it. Look at verse 20 and 21. I think she overhears them. And she says, no, 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 do not call me Naomi, for I am no longer pleasant, I'm no longer delightful. Call me Mara, bitter. Mara is Hebrew for bitter. She declares bitter as her identity. Now, it's one thing to have bitterness towards someone or something in a weak moment. We all do that, we all struggle with that, but it's another thing to be bitter. And when bitterness becomes who you are that's a problem. Bitterness is like internal rot within a tree. So you can have, a a tree in your yard can have rot within the tree, and you don't even realize it. You don't realize it for years. See, tree rot is decay within the trunk of a tree caused by fungus spores that get in through the cracks and holes in the protective layer of the tree called the bark. So the bark has some cracks. These Fungus spores get in the cracks and they embed themselves in the heart of the tree and they start to spread. The wood starts decomposing from within. And sometimes it's hard to spot on the outside. But once tree rot has started, it is difficult to stop. And if we're being honest, life sometimes takes just some hard whacks at you. And it might cause cracks in that external facade, in that protective layer around you. And in those cracks, the spores of bitterness can creep in. And they embed themselves in your heart if you're not careful. And they start to spread and you start to rot from within. Naomi becomes bitter. Now contrast this with Ruth. Naomi places her identity in her circumstances. Ruth places her identity in God. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Your people, my people, your God, my God. And this is partly why forgiveness is so vital, because forgiveness is letting go of the bitter hold that hurt, that pain has on you. In the words of the ancient theologian, Elsa, let it go. Let go of bitterness. Bitterness relives the pain over and over and over. It's like you're stuck in perpetual instant replay. Just rewind, watch it over and over, rewind, and you watch it frame by frame in slow motion. You're reliving it over and over, every frame reenacting the pain. And in bitterness, we constantly bring it up to ourselves, maybe to others, and we vent our anger Bitterness preserves the pain. And so the pervasive rot spreads widely in our hearts. Naomi was clinging to bitterness. Now, Ruth, she let go of bitterness. Oh, she could have been bitter. Remember, her husband also died. She's left with no children, she has no prospects. For all she knows, she's going to be a refugee in a place where they hate her. She's got nothing going for her, but she doesn't cling to bitterness. She clings to Naomi and to Naomi's God. Naomi needed to let go of resentment toward God. But she says, the Lord, he has made me bitter. He's made me bitter. Look at the pointing of fingers. Look at it again. Look at the pointing of fingers. Tale is old the time. This is not anything new. Humanity has been blame shifting toward heaven since the very beginning. In Genesis 3.12, Adam tells God, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit and I ate. The woman you gave to be with me. Before he ever points fingers at Eve, he points fingers at God. Now look again at what Naomi says in verses 20 and 21. Naomi does this. She's pointing fingers at God. Now, here's what Naomi gets right. God is sovereign. Amen? God is sovereign. Literally, the word sovereign means super reign or reign above. It's to reign over all, and no one and nothing reigns over everything in creation like the almighty creator. He is sovereign. Abraham Kuyper, who was a pastor in the 1800s, not Adrian Kuyper, who goes to this campus, although there may be a relation, I don't know, Adrian's a very wise guy, but Abraham Kuyper once quoted saying this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. Not a square inch in all of the universe that Jesus can't say, that's mine. And so, Naomi refers to God as, in Hebrew, Shaddai. Everyone say, Shaddai. Shaddai, Shaddai, you just learned a Hebrew word. Shaddai literally means the Almighty. And we see the term El Shaddai, God Almighty, 48 times in Scripture, 31 times in the book of Job, by the way. El Shaddai, uh, they believe the derivation Shaddai comes from like mountains. So like mountains are sturdy, they're huge, they're steadfast. It's saying the Lord is mighty. The Lord is strong. The Lord is power. He's sovereign. Naomi gets this right. He is almighty. And it's wonderful that Naomi gets this right because she doesn't become atheistic when faced with trials. Now some people do that. They go through difficult times and they think, "Well, there must not be a God if If there was a God, why would I go through difficult times? She doesn't become atheistic. Now, she does not evaluate her circumstances correctly, but she at least sees who is behind them. Here's what Naomi missed. God is sovereign, yes. God is sovereign over difficulties and blessings. She says, he has dealt very bitterly with me. He has brought me back empty. He has brought calamity Upon me. Now listen, God is not evil, nor the author of evil, nor can tempt anyone with evil. We see that in James 1. James literally says, God cannot tempt anyone with evil. 1 John 1 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is not evil. He cannot be evil, but he uses all things, good and bad circumstances, for his purposes. Now, remember why did they leave Bethlehem in the first place? What was going on? Famine. Economic disaster. She says, I left full. No, you didn't. Things were not exactly dandy. They weren't peachy. Now, isn't this often the case when we get bitter? When Israel was in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, so God brought them with a mighty outstretched arm with his miracles, the ten plagues. He brought them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And he guides them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they get to the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea, just amazing things that they got to see. Well, a few days, I think just a few days after that, they're in the wilderness and they go, we want to go back. We want to go back To Egypt. Oh, the vegetables. Oh, the fruits in Egypt. We want to go back. Back to bondage. Back to slavery. Oh, the good old days. But do you see how myopic hindsight can be? Nostalgia often wears rose colored glasses. And we do the same, pining for the good old days. The bitter heart has a selective memory. But also, Did Naomi come back empty? No. Why? Well, look at the name of the book we're studying. She had a wonderfully faithful, devoted daughter-in-law who loved her more than life itself, who loved her greatly. But she either neglects Ruth or just chooses not to mention her. So the bitter heart not only has a selective memory, the bitter heart also has blinders. I mean, look again what she says. It's interesting. She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Fullness was mine. I was full. I had things full, but emptiness came from God. It's easy to ignore that blessings also come from God. Again, blinders. Here's what Naomi also missed. Listen, God can do whatever He wants. Whatever he pleases, whatever he desires, God can do whatever he wants. And God not only can do whatever he wants, because he is El Shaddai, he is the Almighty, he is the sovereign king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, but also all he does is right. He only does right. Now, turn to, from Ruth, to another book of the Bible that starts with R. Romans, in the New Testament. Go to Romans. Romans chapter 9, specifically. I'm not going to read all of this. It's a a big passage, verses 14 through 23. I would encourage you to read on your own. But here's what Paul says about God. He says, God can show mercy to who he shows mercy and compassion to who he shows compassion. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He hardens who he hardens. He shows mercy to whoever he wills. Then he says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the clay say the potter, why did you make me like this? What if, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory It's saying God can do whatever in the world he pleases, and everything he does is right. Everything. God owes us no explanation. It reminds me of the book of Job. In the book of Job, you have this character named, well, Job. (laughs) And Job goes through horrific things that none of us probably ever will face the level of the trials that he faced. I mean, he, in one day loses everything. His servants are kidnapped. His livestock, which was like his livelihood, his, his wealth, gone. His possessions, gone. His status, his privilege, his, his home, his everything, gone. And then, as if that wasn't enough, his 10 children, killed, killed in an instant. Then he gets, boils this horrible disease from head to toe, painful, boils all over his body that he can't stop thinking about. And as if all that wasn't enough, his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, she sounds like a real peach. (laughs) And yet, Job does not lose faith. Now, he is frustrated with God, but he doesn't lose faith in God. He questions God as to why he was suffering, A question, by the way, that God never actually fully answers. Do you realize that? In the whole book of Job, he never fully answers why. Instead, God asks Job a series of questions that reveal that the universe is comprised of a complex array of God's decisions. We don't have the ability to comprehend the vast complexity in God's designs. But even in our suffering, God is still sovereignly in control and God still has a purpose. Now, can you be frustrated with God and still have faith in God? Can you be frustrated with God, particularly in asking God the why of suffering and still have faith in him? Frustration with God, but faith in God. I think Job would say, Naomi shows absolutely yes. But be careful. Be careful. You can ask about the Lord's hand, but do not doubt the Lord's heart. And what I mean is, it's okay to ask God why, seeking to understand his will and his ways, but do not doubt his character, because if you start doubting his character, you start doubting his goodness, his grace, his godliness, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump to unbelief. So you can ask about the Lord's hand, but do not doubt the Lord's heart. There's nothing wrong with asking God why. We naturally do that. But Christian maturity moves from why to how. Why is this happening to how are you going to use this? See, God is never without intention, never purposeless in anything he does. Which leads to the next thing Naomi missed. God has a purpose in all he does. She says, The Lord... Back to Ruth chapter 1. The Lord has testified against me. She's saying, he has judged me and his gavel has slammed down hard on me. It's tough to see God's grace and mercy in a shroud of self-pity. You know, when something bad happens, we tend to think God is mad at us. But you look at Hebrews 12, it says that God disciplines his children whom he loves. Maybe, just maybe, Sometimes pain is an expression of his love. One of the most frequently asked questions I receive, probably every pastor receives in ministry, is this. If God is a good and powerful God, why does he allow bad things to happen to people? You ever ever been asked that question? Ever thought that question? It's a good question. It's a fair question. It's an understandable one because people in pain ask Why? That's what we do. Now, I have heard atheists use this question to attempt to disprove God. And their argument goes like this if you look at this screen. So, three premises leading to a conclusion. Premise number one if a good and powerful God exists, then there would be no suffering unless there are reasons for God to permit that suffering. Number two, suffering in our world exists. And number three, there cannot possibly be a reason that would justify God to permit suffering. Therefore, God must not exist. Now, this is a fallacious argument because one of those three premises has a fatal flaw. Which one is it? It's not the second one. Does suffering in our world exist? Oh, yes. It's not the first one because of the last clause unless there are reasons that would justify him in permitting it. So which one is it? Number three, there can't possibly be a reason that would justify God to permit suffering. Okay. Okay. Well, do you realize in systematic theology there is something called, write this down, theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. You can Google it, Google it later. Theodicy. Theodicy comes from a Greek word, theos, meaning God. Dikos, meaning just or right. So a theodicy is a possible reason that God is right in allowing suffering. So when you get into the problem of evil, you talk about theodicy. What are some possible theodicies, possible reasons God allows suffering? Just one possible reason for God allowing suffering disproves this argument. Just one. And there are likely hundreds, maybe thousands of reasons God allows sufferings. Reasons beyond our knowledge, beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. Paul gives a strong reason in Romans eight twenty eight. God works for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. That means, friends, God uses every ounce of your suffering, every ounce of it, There is no such thing as meaningless suffering. It is doing something in you. It's producing something. God is working for your good and for his glory. Suffering is not the end, friends. Suffering is a means to the end. Suffering bears fruit. And isn't that just like God? He takes something horrible like suffering and redeems it. In James chapter 1, consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, endurance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. It's producing something in you. Suffering produces something. Have you ever seen a beautiful tapestry? You guys know what I'm talking about? Just a beautiful woven tapestry? Well, you look behind the tapestry. And all you see are tangled knots, frayed edges, threadbare, you know, threads just all over. And the colors don't seem to match. They seem out of sequence and out of pattern. It just looks kind of ugly on the backside of a tapestry. But on the front side, it's full of vivid color and glorious beauty. You see the whole picture. We don't always get to see the other side of the tapestry of life. But God does. Because he's the one weaving it. And he is weaving something grand and glorious and beautiful. And he sees the whole picture. We just don't see it. For instance, the last verse of chapter 1. Look at the last verse of chapter 1 here. Verse 22 is a glimmer of optimism. It is a ray of hope shining brightly in the darkness. Here it is. Last sentence. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, this is not insignificant. It's not a random sentence tacked on. Remember, everything God does has intention. Chapter 1 started with famine, it ends with harvest. Now, who is the main character in the book of Ruth? Who's the main character in the book of Ruth? <laughs> it's not Naomi, it's not Boaz, who we'll meet next chapter. And it's actually a trick question. It's actually not Ruth. It's God. In fact, one of the major themes in the book of Ruth is God's providence. And here we see God's providence again. God is behind the scenes weaving the tapestry. There's an old hymn written in the late 1700s by a guy named William Cowper. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it goes like this. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I love that. Naomi only sees the frowning providence of life. She sees the dark clouds, and she thinks God is frowning upon her. But in reality, behind those dark clouds, he has a smiling face. He knows what he's doing. The next verse goes like this. It says, um, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. Naomi is tasting the bitter bud of life in this moment, but oh, there's a sweet flower coming. I call this the inverse bell curve of life. You know, a bell curve goes like this. Look at at this. This is the inverse bell curve of life. And over and over, we see this in Scripture. Over and over, we see this in the Bible. So Joseph, for example, in, in the book of Genesis, right?, He, on the left side, things are good. He is favored by his father, highly favored, technicolor dream coat, right? And a beautiful coat of many colors, but his brothers are jealous, and they kidnap him, throw him into a pit, betray him. Then they sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt, where he's wrongly accused of rape, and he's thrown into prison for at least a few years, he's in the pit, and things just get worse and worse and worse. And when he's in the pit, that's rock bottom. Okay, that's the bottom of this curve. But then God has him, in, him, has him interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. And then you see the upturn. He becomes second in command in Egypt, the vice president of Egypt. And he becomes powerful, so powerful that he's able to preserve his family, and thus the Jewish people... And God uses him all the way to the point that in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. It's the inverse bell curve of life. Good to worse, to bad, to great. Even Jesus, in his lifetime, Great ministry, things are thriving, then people start to leave him, then he's betrayed, then he's crucified, that's rock bottom. Then what happens? He rises from the dead, he ascends to the Father, where he sits at the right hand of God, exalted forever and ever, and he's coming back for us, folks. It doesn't get greater than that. Good to bad to great. So in the book of Ruth, we see fullness in life to famine, death, sorrow. But again, spoiler alert, We're going to see fullness, birth, joy. The end of chapter 1 probably represents rock bottom of this bell curve. None of us are immune to hardships in life. None of us. But even in in the worst of times, God is still good, sovereignly, actively enacting his redemption plan. The greatest good for humanity came from the greatest evil in history, the cross of Jesus Christ. Proof, by the way, that God can use evil for his good purposes. In fact, Jesus on the cross asks, why? Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God doesn't answer it. Because the son already knows the father's reason. He already knows why he's on the cross, which is to right every wrong that sin ever perpetrated, to bring hope, to bring life, to bring freedom through his death. Bitter suffering is not the end of the story. Rock bottom is not the end of Naomi's story. And followers of Jesus, listen to me, it's not the end of yours either. So wait On the Lord, see his hand at work and know, trust in his heart of love. And no matter how bad things get, there's hope in the future. Hope is actually the antidote to bitterness. You may be in the dark night of the soul, but just wait because the sunrise is coming. We like to say this on Good Friday it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. So, the whole point. Church is this, surrender bitter pain to God and let him convert it to sweet trust. We're going to have a different kind of prayer right now. We're going to have a time of prayer, but it's going to be a little different. I actually want us to practice something. It's a biblical practice, a biblical prayer called lament. Now, American churches, we don't like to talk about lament. We like the happy things. We like the joyful things. Tell us about grace. Tell us about, and that's wonderful. We should. But the reality is life hits and sometimes hits hard, right? Life can be difficult. And so lament, the best definition I've ever heard, by the way, is from your very own pastor, Pastor Ben, gave the best definition of lament I've ever heard, which is this. Lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust in God. So lament converts bitter pain into sweet trust. That's what it does. It converts it. Now it may not be in an instant. Sometimes lament is a process. But there, there's a book. Actually, it's our resource of the month for the Book of Ruth this month, called "Deep uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy" by Pastor Mark Vrogop, who's the pastor of College Park Church in Indy. Phenomenal book. I would highly encourage it. And in that book, he goes through how do you lament? Well, here's the four steps. He says: turn to God, bring your complaint. Ask boldly for help and choose to trust. Choose to trust in the goodness of God. So I want you to think right now, what is a recent pain, disappointment, frustration, hurt, suffering? And I want you to do these things. Turn to God, bring your complaint, ask boldly for help, surrender it to God. Choose to trust in his goodness.